morning, church family. So good to be with you during this season. We're going to get into God's Word. Um, Isaiah chapter 7. And if you haven't been with us for a season, we've been in a series. This is our second in the series in Isaiah where we're focusing on these really great messages that Isaiah has of hope. And I'll remind you what I reminded uh, folks of last week, and that is that when the Bible speaks, especially in the prophets, the prophetic word, there are some layers going on that is really helpful to understand. And it'll be helpful for us to all understand that as we think about the words in Isaiah chapter 7. And the first is when, when God speaks through a prophet like Isaiah, he's speaking directly to some historical setting. And um, that word comes true. God's word is faithful and true. So when the people could experience that and see a prophet speak for God himself, and that word comes true, the people could rely in a deeper way, a stronger way, and God, their hope would be in him when they saw those words come true that Isaiah spoke. And when Isaiah spoke those words in this historical context, they did come true. They came true in that season when Isaiah was speaking them, and then over the course of his lifetime. And those people came to honor Isaiah because they saw what was going on in his life, that God was speaking through him, and they saw more powerfully that God was present with them and that he is powerful to speak. So when we call this God's word, we have kind of a confidence in it, that God actually is reliable because he's spoken and it's come true. And then there's another layer, right, where there are words spoken in the prophets that refer in a crazy way, because of the plan of God, because God alone can see the future, the things happening that were happening 700 plus years later as Jesus Christ came. So the writers of the New Testament would see things that were written and spoken of, the prophetic word in the prophets in the Old Testament, and they would say, are you kidding me? Look at this. This is God's word fulfilled again. Can you imagine this layer? And it brought a kind of enthusiasm and a, a power to the word of God. And, and people saw it and they thought, wow, I didn't see that. And we're going to see that here in Isaiah chapter 7. Not only do we see it happening in the context of that day in history, but we see 700 years later, the words that Isaiah speaks out actually coming to fruition. And Jesus and the New Testament writers see it. And they're like, wow, can you, can you imagine this when Isaiah spoke this out? And then there's another layer, a layer that God is speaking throughout the course of time into eternity. So he's unfolding his eternal plan, and we can see it. We can have that perspective. And because of this, we can know with sure confidence, not just wishful thinking, that hope is here. Confidence in God and his word, his presence, and how he speaks out. It's reliable, and I can I can know it to be sure and true in my life. This morning, I'd like you to turn your attention to Isaiah chapter 7. If you have your Bible on your phone, that's great, or iPad, or whatever you brought. If you didn't bring one of those, then um, you can grab one of those things in the pew. It's called a paperback Bible. And you can turn to page 571. And we're going to look at some of the layers of fulfillment that God has for us in His Word. Layers both that had to do with the historical context of the day that Isaiah was speaking out and into the future, God's great plan through his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. On the surface, these words describe a national crisis, a king and his gut-wrenching fear and his misplaced confidence. 
There's misplaced hope. Dig down a little bit into the text and you'll discover this amazing note, a note of hope. So read with me. Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 14. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, that is, Ahaz is Uzziah's grandson. Isaiah began his ministry, if you read through the text, under King Uzziah, just at the end of his reign. So in these days of Ahaz, Rezin, the king of Syria, that's in the north, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, Remember, it's a divided kingdom now between Israel and Judah. They came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's the word for the kingdom of Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. There's a great visual, right? Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, so God is speaking a word through Isaiah to Ahaz, the king, and to his people. Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, be careful or take heed, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it, and let's conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If, listen, you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. I'm going to repeat that. It's a key text. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Verse 13, and he said, hear then, O house of David, it is too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son to call his name Emmanuel. Now, you've heard that last verse, perhaps, especially in the context of the Advent season and Christmas. But it comes in the middle of this historic setting that God helps us understand through Isaiah. So it's important to understand what the setting was, Right? Because this is a fulfilled prophetic word from God that's meant to inspire our faith and our hope in him. Isaiah gave this prophecy in the year 734 B.C. In the middle of all this significant tension in the region where people are competing for rule and trying to get over on one another, 
And there's this alliance that happens between Syria and Israel, and they come to try to defeat Judah in the south. This coalition is formed against Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. Ahaz, who was Uzziah's unbelieving grandson, was on the throne in Jerusalem in that day. And he hears of this coalition because Isaiah speaks it out and helps him understand what's going to happen. And it's meant, intended to replace him with a puppet ruler. And as Isaiah graphically puts it, the response of the people and the response of the king is, they shook his trees of the forest, shake before the wind. That's not a very kingly response, right? Not really helpful or inspiring confidence when all of a sudden the king has this fear and people are scared. Ahaz, you see, we're told from Scripture, has a reason why that's his response. It's his response because he doesn't trust God. He he looks around at the setting that looks overwhelming, and he's counting his troops, and he's thinking about plan B and a way out, and his relationship with God is on the rocks, so he doesn't even look to God, and he gets overwhelmed, and he starts shaking in fear because of his misplaced hope. Scripture tells us that he turns to a man named Tiglath-Pileser, or Pol, in the historical account. The book of Kings says that Ahaz became a son of Pol, that is, a political dependent He forms this alliance and starts paying a tribute, trying to buy off this other king, a tyrant who is not walking with God, to probably um, form this plan B because he didn't want to listen to God, and he's trying to figure out his way out of this. And it was foolish for several reasons. First, as the king, as a king of Judah, God's people, he had as his greatest responsibility a duty It was a duty to learn God's law and to follow the Lord and to be in right relationship with him. We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Moses himself promised that the king who resisted pride and did not turn away from following the Lord would be rewarded with a long reign, like his grandfather was, Uzziah. But that was not Ahaz's story. If you read his story in the book of Kings or Chronicles, you see that his heart was twisted and he did all kinds of evil things as he walked away from the Lord. God had also promised to the house of David an eternal dynasty so long as his descendants held fast to the covenant and to God's teaching. So if the king would stay faithful, God would be faithful. In fact, we know this, that although we are faithless, God is faithful. And that's a bit of the story you're going to see here in Isaiah chapter 7, although Ahaz was faithless. Because Ahaz failed. Ahaz failed in the most important responsibilities he had as king. It wasn't to perform these great things and provide great profit or to expand his kingdom. His greatest responsibility was to walk with God, just like our greatest responsibility is to walk faithfully with the Lord. That was his, and he was failing in it in a big way. Ahaz's dilemma should make us think about our own tendencies, right, to misplace faith and hope. I was watching a commercial the other day, and it's this commercial of this, this little kid who pops up, you know, and he's has got expectations, he's got a hope, and he looks out the window, ah, he doesn't see anything. So 
fast forwards a few more years in his life and he pops up and he goes out and looks out the window and ah, there's nothing there, you know. And it has several scenes of this. It keeps going, right? And then the guy's an adult and he's got a family and he's, it looks like he's given up hope on that, but he glances out the window and there he sees the object of his hope. It's a Mercedes Benz in the parking lot, right? Right there in his driveway, he sees this Mercedes, the object of his great hope for all these years, not thinking that now he's $90,000 in debt and he's got this great insurance payment he's got to make on this thing. And a week from now, he's going to get his first scratch. Right? He's not thinking about any of that stuff, but his hope is in Mercedes. So I'm here to tell you, don't do that. Right? That's, that's stupid advertising, and it's, it's a false hope. It's a misplaced hope. And that's the story of what, Ahaz was going, what was going on in Ahaz's heart. He was thinking, how do I hedge my bets? How do I get out of this? I'll form an alliance with a foreign power. That's what I'll do. I'll trust a ruthless foreign ruler over God Almighty. Hmm. How's that going to work out? It should help us think about our hope. Will we resist the pride of thinking that we know what's best for ourselves, our career, our family? Or will we rely desperately on God Almighty, on his plan and his wisdom? At this point in Ahaz's waffling, God steps in, thankfully. And even though Ahaz and the people of Judah had walked far away from the Lord, God sent Isaiah to call them back. That's what God does. He keeps calling out of his gracious word to us, keeps calling us back to himself. Even when we walk far away, when our hearts get hardened, when we're, we're twisted in our thinking, he keeps offering hope. And that's what he does through Isaiah the prophet here. And in their moment of crisis, the Lord's offering hope. And Isaiah comes to warn Ahaz that only the Lord God can guarantee safety and rescue for God's people. Only the Lord God can offer safety and security and rescue for you. That's the word Isaiah is sounding out. The Lord had a plan in all this. And he was on the throne. And Isaiah is telling Ahaz, you need to hope in him. Hope in the Lord God who has always been faithful above all other things. And don't you love the punchline of Isaiah's message where he says, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. It's such a strong life lesson. There's no standing without faith, without God supporting you holding on to the Lord and our hope in him above all other things, it's, it's essential, especially in times of storm and crisis like what was happening to Ahaz right here. If our hope is misplaced, we will fall. That's the message. And underlying this whole passage is this unconditional promise made by the Lord to David. So the scripture has a set of promises, covenants they're called in the Old Testament. First with Abraham to bless all his descendants and for them to be a blessing as people saw the Lord God and met him through the great news of God's presence. And then he made an agreement with David that all his descendants, his descendants would sit on the throne if God's people would follow him. And God had an eternal plan that he was going to weave out through David and his line, which we're going to find out actually does happen, right? Even when they were faithless, God wove out that great message through the covenant. 
And we found those, uh, we find proof of that covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 and 1 Kings chapter 2 and 4 and 8 and 9. God's mercy, we're told from Scripture, would not depart from the house of David. That was God's promise in the covenant. And their side was simply to be faithful to God. Yet Ahaz and God's people had broken covenant. And they had not lived up to their side of the bargain. And now they were committing their future to a foreign ruler, not to God himself. And in that moment, God gives Isaiah a word to give to them. Isaiah says, the message of God, take heed and be quiet. It's a great word. Pay attention to me. In the middle of this crisis, step back and pay attention. Be still and know that I am the Lord. That's a profound word for us. When life gets crazy and we misplace our hope, step back, be still, get yourself quiet, and know who the Lord is. It's not you. It's not those things that are controlling the circumstances you think around you. It's the Lord. Be still and know who he is. It's appropriate and necessary counsel. And then he warns, do not fear or be faint-hearted. Don't let your fear of the circumstances keep you from placing your hope in me. Hope in me, right? Place your confidence in me and not other things or other people. And it's not a threat. It's an encouragement. God knows that every one of us struggles with doubts and fears. Like, that's all of us, right? If there's someone here who doesn't struggle with doubts and fears in your life, if I could talk to you right afterwards, that would be great. In fact, I know a lot of people here who would love to talk with you. It's a human condition. It's part of our fallenness. We get wrapped up in our questions, our doubts, and our fears, and the Lord is here speaking into it, that very fear. He wants us to know that in those moments of confusion that he is, premise, he is present. And his promises, they're sure for us. In those moments, we need to get quiet and turn to him and give him our doubts and fears. He's not threatened by that. He welcomes it. He wants to know our heart. And security is found only in him. To bolster Ahaz, Isaiah gives the reason why he has nothing to fear and also reveals the weakness of those who plot against him. He calls Rezin and Pekah, these two there, who were uh, aligned to try to conquer Judah, two stubs of smoking firebrands. He's saying, you know what? They're just hot air. Right? They're little stubs. I'm the Lord God, and you're afraid of them? What's going on with that? Don't be afraid of them. Perhaps Isaiah is turning King Ahaz's attention to another promise of God, which says, do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. The Lord will be your confidence, your hope. Faith and fear, they oppose each other. Isaiah then reveals the ultimate goal of this plot, which is to replace him, Ahaz, with the son of Tabeel, that is, to break the Davidic line. That's the end game for them. And there's far-reaching implications for that. If they successfully overthrew Ahaz in the house of David and placed one of the sons of Debeel on the throne, what would happen to God's promise for David? Well, we know that God is always sure and true to his promises. 
but it made them wonder, what would happen if this happens? Now, fast forward 700 plus years to a conversation for a young woman who has an angel, the angel Gabriel, come to her. Luke chapter 1 says this, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we call the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. God's going to fulfill his covenant promise. It's going to be through your son that God is bringing. God is going to accomplish his plan despite Ahaz's unfaithfulness. Because there's a big picture of prophecy that's happening. And the big picture conflict between Satan and God himself. And God wins, right? That's the great news. And God is going to be victorious. And he's going to work it out, Mary, through this son. God's plan would not be defeated. And everyone will be able to see the historic unfolding of his plan. A sure confidence that God will not be thwarted. And so when we look back on what God does and accomplishes through Christmas, we of all people should have hope. Because hope's here. Right? Hope is present. And we know we can have confidence. In verses 7 through 9, the Lord gives two other prophetic utterances. The first one, he says, is this plot will not stand. It won't come to pass, he says in chapter 7, verse 7. Regardless of what you see around you and how dim it looks, this is not going to happen. And the second message is that Ephraim, or the kingdom of Israel, would be broken within 65 years. Verse 8 says that. And that's exactly what happened historically because God proved himself in space and time and history with this word that Isaiah was speaking out. Tragically, Ahaz doesn't trust the Lord. Even though God had always been faithful to his word and his promises, he he doesn't trust the Lord. So God graciously gives him one more chance. God says, ask me for a sign. Ever felt that? God, I just want to know, like it's really sure. So he, God, the Lord God, invites it. Let me prove to you that your hope in me would never fail. And you should place your hope in me and not some other ruler. It's as if the Lord is saying, listen, I gave Moses signs. And the people believed, Exodus 3 and Exodus 4. I worked signs in Egypt throughout the course of the people of Israel, all the way through the wilderness. I've made known my power to save, and I can save you. Just ask me for a sign. I'm ready to help you believe. And isn't that good of the Lord? That he's ready to help you take that step of faith and trust in him. You can have confidence in God. He keeps asking. Ask me for a sign. It's not unlike other moments, key moments in Israel's history, where God invited people to ask them for a sign. 1 Kings chapter 3 and 2 Chronicles 1 and Psalm 2. Just ask for a sign, the Lord says. Ahaz, though, pretends to be pious, to be religious. He refuses to ask. And it's not coming out of a healthy motivation. It's because he knows if he asks the Lord, God will say yes. And he doesn't want to get trapped into that. So he resists it. He says, no, I'm not going to test you. God was going to give him a response. 
says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Even if, even if you say no to me, here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, that's not a completely unique name in Judah in that day, but it was a completely unique work that God was going to do. The Hebrew wording for virgin can refer to two slightly different meanings, and I believe they're connected to what happens historically, both in that day and in that context and that setting, and what was going to do and what he was going to do in the life of Jesus. So the first meaning is a young woman of marriageable age. In the immediate context of this prophecy, I believe this is what's happening. Isaiah is saying, look, here's a young woman who is pregnant and giving birth to a son. And she's going to call his name Emmanuel. Don't miss the meaning of the son's name, Ahaz. God with us. He is present. Place your hope there. The Hebrew text calls attention to that present reality in Genesis 16 and Genesis 38 and Jeremiah 31. The impossible miracle of God's saving power, it's evident in birth. This birth that the king is going to see. It's like, stop looking in other places and look at this miracle of life. Understand the power of the Lord, my, the Lord our God. Here's this woman. She's in the middle, middle of the throes of labor and the pains of that. And she is laboring in faith to bring forth a life. And in a moment, you're going to hear this infant cry. And the woman's going to feel this flood of fierce love that binds her to this child as that child's guardian and protector. Listen closely when she speaks out the little baby's name. And you're going to hear the ground of hope, the ground of life. God with us. Ahaz, the Lord is your guardian and protector. It's him. Place your hope there. And the face of this powerful message from God, Ahaz gets it. No, that's not what happens. I wish it was, but he doesn't get it, right? He doesn't place his hope there. And yet God is not done yet. Ahaz chooses poorly. He chooses to bribe Tiglath Pileser III to save him from pecking and raising. And we find that story in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. And the chronicler says that Ahaz then walks progressively farther and farther away from God. When he refuses to place his hope there, he keeps down this downward spiral. He resists real hope. And apparently he thought that he was indispensable to the program of God. By the way, you're not. God is the Lord God Almighty and was going to bring out his word and his promises in the context here. But there's something else going on in the immediate context in history, right? When you hear these words, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You think of? Hello? Who do you think of? Right, it's, it's the Bible answer, right? You think of Jesus. It's not complicated because it's God with us. Oh, that's a message that the, actually the New Testament writers grabbed hold of. They saw this word given 730 plus years before them. And they saw that in the birth of Jesus, 
that there was fulfillment. And not only did the writers of the New Testament think that, all of heaven knew it. They knew the truth of that, that God was revealing his story for the ages. Matthew 1 records the following, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that is before they had intercourse, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Listen, all this took place so that you would know Isaiah 7 was true. Isaiah 7.14 was a word given from God for this very moment. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's with us. And when Joseph awoke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The promise of God given through Isaiah of a virgin birth. It brought to fulfillment God's plan a plan that would written, spoken about over 700 years before it happened. And it offered up hope, proof, proof that God would be sure to his word. And yet, we wrestle with that truth. I have um, plenty of agnostic and atheistic friends who just scoff at it, actually. A virgin birth, that's crazy. How could you possibly make that leap of logic? It doesn't make sense. I appreciate what Donald McLeod has said here. The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that If we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. Here's the truth. This is a supernatural work of God. God at times is God and steps into the order of human history so that we might know who he is and we might have hope. The foundational question is, could this have really happened? Could God really truly do that? I mean, it's written about by two very non-gullible guys. Matthew, who was an experienced tax collector and heard all the stories before. And Luke, who was a doctor, who we have to assume knows something about reproduction science. These two guys are the ones that write about a virgin birth, that it was significant, that God was fulfilling his promise for the ages. Could God do this? Would it be his plan? First, according to Scripture, Colossians 1 and John 1, the promised Messiah, named Emmanuel, had existed before time and creation. He was pre-existent. His birth or his coming was by definition unique. Never happened before. Would never happen again. Scripture attests to the fact that God had always this in mind. 
that he would send his son to earth so that we might know him and we might know the full measure of his love and his power and the truth of his word and take great hope in him. That's why God did it this way. And second, you should ask yourself just how God could enter the world of human life in any other way except by this, the plan of God, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Yes, it looks surprising, but it's not irrational. It's not illogical according to God's logic because Jesus had to be sinless, unstained by human depravity. And thus he was conceived by the Holy Spirit as a sacred and holy act. And his coming would alert God's people that the miraculous was there and God was intervening in history so that we might know him and our hope in him would be sure. Wayne Gruden reflects, God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary birth from a human mother and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth has a logic to it. It's God's plan so that we might understand his power and his great love for us. In one sense, Jesus' conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary is not more wonderful than other conceptions, is it? It's just surprisingly different. It points to the power and the sovereignty of God, and yet in every human birth, there is a miracle. There is a grace of God, a mercy of his. Consider what God was accomplishing as a result of the virgin birth. He was sending his one and only son to save us through an act that only God could accomplish so that we would not have doubt. Therefore, he alone gets the glory. And Jesus' birth revealed the essential part that the Holy Spirit plays in the redemptive plan of God in our story of redemption. And his birth honored and elevated women to a place of dignity and honor and respect that had never taken place in the course of human history to that day. It honored women. And it elevated the sanctity of embryonic life. And it emphasized sexual purity as one of God's highest values for men and women. And it elevated motherhood as a position of honor. And it makes us stand back and wonder, wow, listen, there is no one like my God. If God could do this, is there anything of true value he can't do? That's what it gets us to step back and think. If God could do this, is there anything of significance in your life that he cannot do? I appreciate one pastor's observation about the virgin birth. If the virgin birth of Jesus is untrue, then the story of Jesus changes greatly. We have a sexually promiscuous young woman lying about God's miraculous hand in the birth of her son, raising that son to declare he was God and then joining his religion. But if Mary is nothing more than a sinful con artist, then neither she nor her son Jesus should be trusted because both the clear teachings of Scripture about the beginning of Jesus' earthly life and the character of his mother are at stake, and thus we must contend for the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We say this is a work of God, and only God could do it, and we have to contend for it because it gets at the heart of God's miraculous plan and his work, the miraculous work of God that connects the salvation story from one point, the beginning point, 
to the end. At one point, Jesus' life lies in this supernatural conception and birth, and the other, it ends with his supernatural death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father, demonstrating for all of us that he loves us and he's powerful enough to conquer death and sin. So Isaiah 7 holds out this great hope. God would be true to his word in the moment. Historical reality, words that came true right then. And there are also words that point to Jesus Christ to give us hope. And we hear these words and we're encouraged to stand for him. Stand amazed at his work and his great plan to rescue people. People like me and people like you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great promises that are true, that give us hope. And I pray for those that might have come this morning without hope, just looking all over for it, that they would understand that you are a God who's true to your word, that you've loved them. I give them the boldness simply to turn to you. If that described you, I would encourage you right now to trust the Lord and not other things. Just simply tell him. Tell him of your brokenness. Tell him of the ways that you haven't trusted him and you've been unfaithful. Just ask him honestly because he's a God who just loves to hear you. Tell him that you want to trust him and follow him and he will make you new, forgive you, cleanse you, bring you into his family. To have that conversation right now, just speak it out to him. And if you're a believer, you came in with wavering hope, dear friend, trust in him. Hope is here. And all God's people said, Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.